Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Amy. And this is Anxiously, the show where we talk about all the things that make us anxious. So Lisa, how are you doing? Well, I've been having really bad lower back pain and it's sort of been on and off for a long time, but the last week it has been really bad. And I feel like these almost like electric currents sort of buzzing through my lower back and it feels horrible. Oh no. I also, now I'm going to be full on elderly person, my hip. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have this hip injury from running and that's been really acting up. Now it's like walking hurts. That's not good. (laughs) Just falling apart. The thing is, I know that if I just like got back into a routine of going to physical therapy and doing more core exercises, I'd feel better and I'd be a lot happier. And overall, I think I'm just, I don't know, anxious about getting in the way of my own happiness over and over. I totally know what you mean about knowing something is good for us and still not being able to do it. In my case, sleep. Like, I've always been a bad sleeper, like, my whole life. I think I'm just naturally a night owl, but I feel like, especially in the pandemic, my sleep habits have gotten even worse somehow. I think it's just, like, the irregular schedule and doom scrolling, of course, on the phone. And I know that if I just go to bed earlier, I will sleep better and feel better, and yet I don't. What is like this block that keeps us from doing things that are going to be good for us and are going to make us happy, happier? I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I feel like there's something lacking in the way I'm conducting my life, the way I'm living my life. Like there's a lack of intentionality. Yeah. And this struggle to kind of live a more fulfilling life. Why are we having so much trouble doing the things that that will, you know, make us happy? I One thing that's interesting to me is this idea of incentive. Are we not doing it because there's not a strong enough incentive? Is this idea of, well, it'll make me happier, it'll make me feel good, actually not enough of an incentive? And is that why we're kind of stuck? That's interesting. I feel like there's so much focus on all the different ways people can and should be bettering themselves. It's like our bodies, our minds, our spirits. So there's like this pressure there to feel like we should always be working on self-improvement. Which I guess is a little bit different from doing the things that fulfill us. But I feel like there's a lot of like should. There is a lot of should. And it's so overwhelming because there's so many shoulds. And I think the idea is that if you accomplish all these shoulds, then you'll be happier, right? You will be more fulfilled. But is that true? I don't know. I don't know. And do you need to go to an ashram to get into that (laughs) sort of mind space to accomplish the shoulds? And is there a moment in time where you could say, I've checked off all the boxes? Or is it just like something you just keep chasing? I do think it is a pursuit. And I do think it is something you chase this idea of happiness, in some ways it does come from like a place of privilege, like that we have the time and the space to like even think about these things and and ponder it. Right. It's a luxury. Yeah. I'm sure like the serfs in medieval Europe did not (laughs) have time to think about happiness. It was about survival. I guess I question sort of the trappings of this modern life. And I mean, this sort of goes back to some of what we talked about in the Judaism episode, like Is there more that is maybe 
harder, but would be ultimately more fulfilling and rich. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned an ashram before, because I do think <laughs> that is the role religion often plays or you know, certainly played in society of giving people a purpose and a structure. Because I do think people need structure and thrive on structure. And it is interesting that in our sort of less religious or post-religious or whatever you want to call it, world, like that people are maybe struggling more with that lack of structure. Yeah. And maybe there's a sort of emptiness too, like an existential emptiness. This is very existential. I feel like our conversation is very existential. <laughs> So maybe we should bring in someone who's actually an expert on happiness. What a great idea. And how lucky are we that we have Gretchen Rubin here to join us today. Gretchen Rubin is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Outer Order, Inner Calm, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and The Four Tendencies. She makes frequent TV appearances and is a CBS News contributor. On her weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. And it is a fabulous podcast. Highly recommend it. And now here's our conversation with Gretchen. Hi, Gretchen. Welcome to Anxiously, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you, because you are the expert on happiness, what is happiness? How would you define it? Well, I started my career in law, so I spent an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract. And if anything, happiness is an even more elusive concept to define. And there's something like 15 or 17 academic definitions of happiness and so I really don't define it. And I think that the looseness of the term is actually good because for some people it's joy or bliss or peace or satisfaction or well-being or contentment. And I like the idea that the word happiness is big enough to encompass all those ideas. And I think it's more helpful to think about being happier according to whatever is happiness to you. This week, next month, can you do things that are going to make you happier that feels very clear, whereas what is happiness anyway? I feel like my brain starts to melt when I try to think about it. So it's sort of like a journey, maybe a spectrum. Yes, and I think that's a much more realistic way to think about it because it's not like we're going to hit some magical finish line. We're just kind of in it, so we got to <laughs> get it together. Yeah. And so much of getting it together is about forming good habits and trying to find the things that make us feel good and feel healthy why do you think people have trouble forming those good habits sometimes and, and sticking with them? Well, can I take a minute and explain my four tendencies framework? Because that was the question that haunted me, that led me to this framework, because I think that's the million dollar question, which is once you recognize that habits can make you happier, the question becomes, then why don't you? Why do people struggle so much? When there's a lot of reasons for that. But one reason is this framework. It divides the world into four categories upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. It sounds boring, but it turns out to be really, really helpful to know how you respond to expectations. So we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend, and inner expectations like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to write a YA novel in my free time. So depending on how you meet or resist, 
outer and inner expectations, that's what makes you an upholder, a questioner, a obliger, or a rebel. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So they tend to like execution. They don't need a lot of supervision. They like calendars and to-do lists. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, if they think it's efficient, it's justified, there's reasons for it, they'll do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, if they think it's arbitrary, if it's unreasonable, it's unjustified, then they will push back. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this tendency when a friend said, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she showed up no problem. But now that she's trying to do it on her own, it was a struggle. So what obligers need is outer accountability, even to meet an inner expectation. If you want to read more, join a book group, think of your duty to be a role model to somebody else, raise money for a charity. There's a lot of ways to create outer accountability once you know that's what you need. And their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. yoga class on Saturday because they think, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. And so when you look at why people have trouble sticking to habits, a lot of times it's because of a tendency. So an obliger is trying to go running every morning, but without outer accountability. Or somebody keeps telling a rebel, oh, just sign up for a class and go. And they're like, I hate feeling trapped by my calendar. Like, oh, make a to-do list. It just marched through it. And they're like, the minutes are on the to-do list, I won't do it. Or a questioner is like, yeah, you know, my doctor's telling me to take this medication, but I don't really see the reason for it. So I'm not going to do it. So once you understand someone's tendency, it's a lot easier to understand how they might more successfully form habits or why maybe they're discouraged by a habit that they're struggling with. That's really good to know. And I think it's really, really helpful. I know I'm an obliger. Well, that's the biggest tendency for both men and women. So you're in great company with a lot of people. Do you think people are more likely to live without so-called intention because they haven't figured out which of the four tendencies they embody? And so in some way, it's easier to just coast along? I think your question points out sort of two steps. One step is to have clearly in your mind what you intend to do and what you think would make you happier. And it's very easy to just get caught in the tumult of everyday life and not think like, you know, I'd be happier if I made time to read every day or I made time to exercise consistently or if I made time to see my friends more often or if I stopped yelling at my kids so much. Like, first, you have to have it in your mind what you think would make you happier. So, like, what habit am I embarking upon? So you would think like, okay, well, this is a habit that you want and you think it's going to make you happier or healthier or more productive or more creative. So then why aren't you? And I think what many people would say is you just need to get clear on your intention. And when you put yourself first, when you keep your promises to yourself, when you take time for self-care, then action will follow. 
And the fact is, it does not. I'm not saying that's not a good idea. I'm just saying in my observation and in many people's experience, that doesn't do it. I'm not saying it's not a good idea. I'm just saying some people need different things. So a questioner, you could be like, oh, you know, you really should exercise. It'd be great for you to exercise. They could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they haven't really decided that this is the best way for them to exercise. This makes the most sense. They really buy in. So their actions don't follow. Or maybe they're confused. Maybe they have analysis paralysis and they keep doing more and more and more research. Like, what's the best way to exercise? You could research that for the rest of your life. There's like new information every day. And an obliger is like, ooh, if I just whip myself into a frenzy of desire, if I just get really clear in my mind what I want, then obviously I'll quit sugar or I'll quit work every day at 7 p.m. and give myself healthy boundaries. And I'm like, no, I don't think you will. Because I think you need outer accountability for that. Good news, outer accountability is very easy. There's a million ways to create outer accountability because so many people need it. But you have to plug it in. And then rebels, a lot of times people, you know, even rebels themselves are like, well, what's wrong with me? Everybody else can do these things. But you tell me to do something, I don't want to do it. What do I do about that? It's like, this is a rebel thing. Rebels just have to work with their rebel tendency. They can do anything they want to do, but they have to set themselves up for success. So I think a lot of times people get discouraged because they're trying to do something in the way that's wrong for them. So they're not achieving their aims, not because there's anything wrong with what they're doing. It's just not a good fit. And so if they set it up differently, they'd have a lot better success. That's so interesting. I, I think I'm a combination of an obliger and a rebel, which is like the weirdest thing ever. No, 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 no. That's not at all. There's a deep affinity between obligers and rebels. Obligers and rebels overlap and that they both resist inner expectations and so to be an obliger who tips to rebel is not uncommon at all. Now that you're saying that, I feel like my husband is those things too, which is interesting that we were drawn to each other. Well, I will say this, that a very, very common pattern is that if one person in a pair is a rebel, whether it's in romance or like in a work team, like a founding team, if one person is a rebel, almost always the other person is an obliger. There are exceptions, but that's overwhelmingly the pattern. Which of the four tendencies do you identify with? I'm an upholder. How do you manifest as an upholder? And then do you yourself find yourself falling into quote-unquote bad patterns? I will say that one of the nice things about being an upholder is it's pretty easy to form habits. And I will give you a hint that is whenever you are reading a book by somebody who's like, hey, I figured out how to have good habits, it's often an upholder. And so their advice, and I fell into this trap myself, their advice is often misleading because they're like, well, this works for me. So if everybody else would just get with the program and do this, it would work for them. And it's like, well, anything works for an upholder because upholders are good at this kind of thing. The problem with being an upholder is often rigidity. We don't feel rigid, by the way, but other people find us rigid because it's hard for us to be flexible. It's hard for us to deal with ambiguity. It's hard for us to check, like, oh, I've made my calendar for what I'm going to get done today. And like, I'm not really that interested in having you like come in and tell me that we have a whole new schedule because I have my schedule that can make an upholder very uneasy. They can also be kind of cold. They can be perceived as cold because it's like, oh, yeah, I know your family's coming to stay with us this weekend. But, you know, I'm training for the marathon. I got to go on a 15 mile run this weekend. So yeah, I'm just not going to be able to see your family much. It's just like to an upholder, that seems very, very acceptable because an inner expectation must be met. But to others, it can seem cold. That's how you would see kind of the dark side of being an upholder come out. It's kind of like too much habit keeping. 
I guess I aspire to that in some ways, but it sounds like <laughs> you, you can't change yourself fundamentally. So learning to work within those those frameworks. I think that's the secret to it is figuring out how to harness the strengths and then how to offset the limitations and the weaknesses, whatever your tendency is. Because they all are they all include people who are wildly successful and also people who who have a lot of challenges. So it's just managing yourself. As always, that's the big struggle, self-management. What led you to start writing about happiness? Well, you know, I was finishing up a book about JFK, a biography of JFK, and I was stuck in a city bus here in New York City in the pouring rain. And I looked out the window and I thought, well, what do I want from life anyway? You know, I never asked myself these big questions. And then I thought, well, I want to be happy. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or if I thought it was possible to be happier. And so I thought, well, I should have a happiness project. And that was how I thought of it. And so I ran to the library, got a giant stack of books and started reading, like, what is happiness? How can you make yourself happy? What does ancient philosophy say? What does contemporary science say? And then I got so excited. I just like wanted to try all these things. And I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And finally, I thought, wow, maybe this should be my next book. (laughs) So I wrote my book, The Happiness Project, about that. And then it turned out that happiness is just so such a vast and fascinating subject that I've basically been writing about it one way or another ever since. Are there any tips that you could offer for our listeners for developing healthier habits or a more fulfilling lifestyle? Well, I mean, again, ancient philosophy and contemporary research would agree that if you had to pick one thing as the key to a happy life, it's relationships. I mean, to be happy, we have to have enduring, intimate bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We have to be able to confide. We have to be able to get support. And just as important, we have to be able to give support. And so anytime you're thinking about how to use your time, energy, or money, you want to think like, is this something that's going to broaden my relationships or deepen my relationships? And if so, it's probably a really good thing to do. So if somebody says to you like, hey, we're all going to go hang out after work, like in the future time or the past time. On the margin, yeah, that'd probably make you happier. If you're thinking, oh, gosh, my college reunion, like I know it'd be fun, but it's a lot of time and inconvenience to like deal with it. Yeah, probably if you went, you would be really happy that you did. You're thinking, oh, should I start a book group? Like I've been thinking about that forever. Yes, you probably should start a book group. That probably would make you happier. So that's one thing. And another thing to think about in this sort of the whole other extreme is think about your body. Because your emotional experience is always going to be colored by your physical experience. So things like getting enough sleep, getting some exercise, you don't have to train for the marathon, not letting yourself get too hungry. A lot of times people eat really unhealthfully because they get too hungry and then they kind of can't manage what they're eating in a healthy way. So thinking about your body and maintaining your energy, those are some good things to start with. Those are great tips. They're very basic, but yet not as easy as they may sound. Like it sounds so common sense, but yet it's a good reminder. Yeah, I think with happiness, a lot of it is stuff you already know. It's not like it's breaking news. And usually when something is breaking news, I'm like, okay, that's going to be disproven in a couple of years. But a replication (laughs) crisis is going to wash that one out. Like a fad, you mean? Yeah. I mean, there's just things where I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, (laughs) most of it we know. Like if you do this one thing every day, if you eat like, figs or something. Yes, right. <laughs> Pomegranates are the answer. No, I mean, the greatest minds in history have been thinking about happiness for thousands of years. It's like anything new is probably not true, I think. Or there's certainly enough that's well established to keep us busy. Shh. 
she was amazing. And I wish I wasn't upholder because it sounds like she doesn't procrastinate at all. She's so together. And I feel like upholders are together and I'm not together. And <laughs> In some ways, there's freedom in realizing that this is just me. This is just us. And like, we have to work with what we've got. Yeah. It's okay to not be an upholder because that's just not us. I guess it doesn't make sense to like, beat myself up for being an obliger and needing the external incentives. Well, maybe we can be each other's external incentives. We can help each other be a team. What are you doing this week to feel a little less anxious? I am going to present a plan and you have to hold me to it, okay? I love this. Yes. (laughs) So my plan is to start journaling because I used to keep a journal and it's one of the things that just sort of fell by the wayside as I got older and busier. And I want to get back into meditation. Those are such good goals and they also feel doable. And I will be your outside incentive and I will check in with you and nudge you and tell you to to do the things. (laughs) Thank you. What are you doing this week? So I am watching this show on HBO that I love. It's a a new show. It's out now called Mayor of Easttown. It stars Kate Winslet. And it's a very grim murder mystery. And yet, ironically, lowers my anxiety. Like, makes me super (laughs) anxious when I watch it because it's intense and scary and suspenseful. But there's a reason that people love mysteries and thrillers. It's like catharsis in some way. Like, you get to channel all your anxiety into that. So that has been bringing me joy every Sunday night. So I recommend it. Well, that's fun. Well, I'm so glad we were able to talk to Gretchen together and discuss these big ideas. And I'm so grateful to have you to be my external incentivizer and and also to be my friend. I know you get it. I know you get it, my fellow obliger. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope everyone listening gets it too. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman Ader, and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at AnxiouslyPod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later.